Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. As of 2019, 49.7% of American renters spend more than a third of their household income on rent. And fully one quarter of all renters are spending at least half their income on rent. Meanwhile, if you want to buy a house, median prices are similarly skyrocketing. Last time I checked in Washington, D.C., where I live, there weren't any houses for sale for less than half a million dollars. And the cheapest one that I happened to find in my neighborhood was going for 565000 and you had to sign a waiver before walking in just in case the roof fell on you. How did we get here? When did housing turn into the foremost symbol of inequality and capitalism gone wrong? To find out, you have to go much further back than the 2008 financial crisis, which was infamously built on the shaky foundation of subprime mortgages. In his new book, Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America, New York Times reporter Connor Doherty uses the housing crisis in California as a case study for the rest of the country, chronicling the building-level struggles, municipal policy fights, and sweeping economic changes that have rattled our notion of shelter for the past 50 years. Connor Doherty joins us from where else, California, to talk about the current housing crisis and how we can possibly get out of it. Thanks for talking to me, Connor. Thank you for having me. So Golden Gates is a specifically California story. So I was just wondering if you could sum up what exactly the California housing story can tell us about the national story, why someone living in like Des Moines or Chicago should be reading your book. There has for decades been this adage that California is a glimpse at the nation's future. Whether or not anyone else believes that, I believe that. And the Bay Area and California are are so over the top in this housing problem. Um, the companies are so big and so valuable. The politics are so fraught. The land use situation is so chaotic that I feel like if we can, this story gives us like a like a very amplified version of what's happening elsewhere. Uh, and so it kind of you know if you can solve this problem, you can solve any problem. By the way, I should say. I set this story in California largely because I'm here, uh, because I'm from the Bay Area, so I I have a sense of it, Uh, and and also because narratively, 
I wanted to capture lots of different sides of this story. I wanted to capture a tenant while they're being displaced. I wanted to capture one of these EMB activists while they're sort of rising to prominence. I wanted to talk to a legislator while they're sort of trying to put that stuff together. I wanted to see how investment, uh, you know, sort of the sort of evict and gut displacement investment model works. And it was just like so much easier to follow all those stories in a place because just journalistically, if you're sort of trying to follow someone while they're being displaced, it's a pretty chaotic situation and you sort of have to be there in an hour or 10 minutes or, you know, so a lot is going on. And I just thought that narratively, it was so much better to have a a richer story than to try and, you know, lily pad my way around the country. Uh, It's not like California is the only place with a lot of car centric suburbs. It's not like it's the only place where inequality is getting uh, much worse. It's not the only place where NIMBYs exist. I mean, all those things are pretty universally American, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a huge cast of characters and a huge like collection of interests represented both in the book and in the housing struggle more generally. But before we go into the giant cast of characters, I thought you could talk about how everything went wrong. You have this really great sentence uh, in your book where you say during the long recovery from the Great Recession, every single thing about housing became horrible at once. So what are all those things that went horrible? So for starters, we didn't build much after the Great Recession because the whole like building industry got flattened. Uh, so that that alone was a huge problem. And as building came back, it did not come back nearly as strongly as it had been you know, a decade before. I'm not even talking about the inflated recessionary levels. That's still true today. So that is a huge problem. Uh, on top of that, these millennials came along. And I always say to people, everyone acts like the millennials are so special because they are on the Internet a lot or whatever. No, the reason they're special is there's a lot of them. And a lot of them were hitting, you know, leaving college, leaving parents' homes. They were at that, I'm going to go find an apartment age right as the Great Recession ended. But combination of things we weren't building, earlier generations were not just decamping to the suburbs at the same rate. You know, on top of that, we had, you know, all the recession stuff. I mean, they like completely rebuilt this country for the baby boomers. We just like never really did that for the millennials. Leaving aside any particular preference about where or how we do it. We just never did it one way or the other. Whether it was dense housing or gigantic suburbs, we never made space for that generation. Yeah. I mean, I think the boomers are actually kind of a good place to start because you do have to go back quite a ways to find the roots of what went wrong. It's not like things only started going wrong in the 90s or in the 70s. Or even in the 50s, you know, there were housing shortages well before then. So how far back did you go to tell the story? Like, where do you find the biggest sources for these tangled, tangled troubles? So I could have gone any number of places, but I decided to start uh, the day World War II ends. On that day, we had a horrible housing shortage. And all the sort of things that you're seeing today, you saw versions of then. All these stories about people subdividing apartments so that, you know, someone could live like in the crawl space behind a couch, people living in their cars, you know, someone living in a chicken coop. There's all these stories after World War II. And it was a sort of similar dynamic then to now, which is that they had the Great Depression, so no one built anything. Then they had the war when rationing kind of uh, prompted people to not build. So 
the point is, for many, many, many years, we essentially did not build. And then all of a sudden, we started to have a recovery. Uh, we started to have a lot more kids. And all these things kind of converged to create this really bad housing problem. But they fixed it. They fixed it by building the post-war suburbs, which as we can talk about later, that had a whole bunch of problems with them, racial exclusion. Uh, of course, we're now dealing with the environmental consequences. But in terms of building volume, the volume of housing we needed for this growing and more prosperous population, they pretty well satisfied it. And of course, another thing that was pretty important for back then is the housing they were building was affordable. The private market, which is so demonized today, was working then. So one of the things that happened in California and happened everywhere else um, is developers built in irresponsible and sort of unsightly way. They would encase riverbanks in concrete and plow over farms and just chew up more and more land. In San Francisco, they were talking about putting multiple freeways over Golden Gate Park. And people freaked out. They were like, is this really our future that we're just going to go further and further out, build on every wonderful hillside? And and they stopped it. And at the time, if you think about it, that was absolutely the right thing to do. There was a plan at one point to essentially pave the bay. What ended up happening, though, is we overcorrected. And ironically, uh, many years later, decades later, it's often harder in California now to build infill housing, you know, housing where people already live, than it is to build sprawl. So a lot of the the backlash event sprawl sort of weirdly ended up perpetuating it. Right. And the backlash against that suburban sprawl is what birthed the NIMBY movement, not in my backyard, which oddly enough went hand in hand with environmental conservation for a long time and sometimes still does. And now, of course, we have the Yimbies, who get a lot of attention in your book, who say, yes, in my backyard, and advocate for building more housing. And so these two groups, the Nimbies and the Yimbies, clash and side with developers and tenant advocates and interesting and sometimes unholy alliances, which we can talk about later. Um, But for now, what more can you tell us about the arguments that Yimbies are using to fight back against sprawl, to fight for more housing, and to sometimes actually sue the suburbs into submission? I had started talking to economists like Ed Glazer and people like that almost a decade ago about how America had this really bad housing problem. But it wasn't like really on the radar of a lot of people. It was something you'd read in policy papers. But the kind of NIMBY mindset, please don't build, was still predominantly the local politics kind of driving force. So after writing a bunch of stories about this, I kind of said to myself, I said, you know, I need to see somebody be angry about this or else I just it's hard to believe that it's that big of a problem. So I met this woman, Sonia, in uh, when she was very raw at the time uh, in the Bay Area. And she had started calling herself SF Yimby and was just showing up to these board of supervisors meetings. San Francisco does not have a city council and saying you need to build more housing. Uh, dense housing, build more of it, affordable housing, build more of it. She was just very outspoken. And I'd never really seen someone outside of like a straight up like developer person. I've never really seen anyone kind of articulate that in like a really genuine way. And it was this like fascinating thing to me because when you're covering economics, you very rarely see regular people engage it in this 
very policy-centric kind of way. I mean, she's really just up there kind of parroting what Barack Obama's Council of Economic Advisors was saying at the same time. And so this opened up to me this whole YIMBY movement. And as I followed it over the course of the book, they started to make every argument. Your question was, what arguments do they make to counter these things? Well, they bring up the racial exclusion that, you know, is born in a lot of the zoning that kind of protects suburbs and keeps them largely with single-family homes. A number of them are climate change activists. Some of them, uh, this is less true now, but at the very beginning, some of them were these kind of like hardcore libertarians who who just had found this kind of marriage of convenience with what are basically like young lefties from San Francisco. And it was it was all these kind of groups kind of meeting online, kind of coming together and then organizing um, all kind of showing up at these meetings. And it, I mean, the other funny thing is, you know, you see these young people. I mean, I'm, I'm 42, but they were like, you know, somewhere between 25 and 35. And they would be like going to planning meetings on a Wednesday. That would be like they would what they would do. And I, I mean, I was not going to planning meetings when I was 25. This was mm-hmm. not what I considered an entertaining thing to do with my time. So it, what's been fascinating to me is watching how these different groups just kind of taking this like triple assault where they're trying to push legislation, trying to push lawsuits, just trying to sort of find any angle they can. So is there any way to bridge these two camps, um, not just YIMBYs and NIMBYs, but all the conflicts about solving the housing crisis? So I think that what I tried to sort of foreshadow is that these groups can have common cause. Um, but what's important and what we didn't do during redevelopment is actually have true partnership and true all the voices at the table, which is you know a cliche, but it's also true. So I don't think that we necessarily have to have these groups have some amazing, wonderful kumbaya moment. What we just need is uh, both of them to have power. I mean, obviously, the tenants' rights movement, though not nearly as powerful as it hopefully will be in future years, they're starting to really build a lot of power. They're starting to uh, have a lot of victories. Um, And so these kinds of things are happening simultaneously. And I think that's good because it all kind of converges into this recognition that like what's going on right now is just like not okay. And maybe we don't even know exactly what the right set of solutions is to get us out of this. But the status quo is like not working. Yeah, what's interesting to me is that so much about housing is decided on the municipal level. So these fights get really intense, partly because you can achieve so much and because it's happening literally in people's backyards. But at the same time, neighboring municipalities can also screw each other over with their own housing policies, especially when a wealthy municipality, say, is next door to a poor community and they base their housing policy on how best to keep the poor community out. So what gives municipalities so much power? Well, for starters, uh, on the income segregation side and, and more importantly, the wealth segregation side, housing is pretty much that entire story. Most of the gap between African-Americans and white families um, and just between the rich and the poor generally has to do with housing because, you know, for two thirds of Americans, a house is the largest asset they own. So I started talking to this guy. He's a scholar in municipal incorporation. So how you actually incorporate to become a city, which, of course, sounds like the driest possible topic. If there's anything drier than housing policy, it's that, and that's hard to pull Hmm. off. But this turns out to be like a hugely important thing 
because it used to be that to build a city, you had to be like kind of a certain size and part and parcel of that size with the, you would have to have a more diverse economy, you know, more diverse types of housing. And within that, I'm sure there would be all sorts of horrific neighborhood level decisions. But generally speaking, you would start to see a more, for lack of a better term, redistributive government. What started to happen as cities incorporated like crazy in the 50s and 60s was you started to see people just like completely walling themselves off and not even providing certain services. Because, you know, if you're in a really wealthy neighborhood, maybe you don't even really want that many public parks. But of course, bound up in that is maybe you also say, I want everybody who lives here to be able to have a three acre lot. Maybe you also say, I don't want our city to have any apartment buildings. Obviously, you're setting yourself up for a certain kind of community. Um, One of the kind of criticisms I get is people say to me, shouldn't the local people have decisions over what their neighborhood looks like? My neighbor says this to me frequently. I live in Oakland, but I live in a low-density neighborhood of Oakland. And what I say to them is, yes, the answer is yes. But what should we define local as being? Because the way it's frequently meant is people who live within, you know, a block or two of whatever project everyone's protesting at their city council. But I live a quarter of a mile from a BART stop. That BART stop is useless without all the other BART stops on the other end of it. So this amenity that I bought a home near is useless to me unless I can get to all these other places. Should those people have some say in the housing decisions around my neighborhood? Because I'm sure by implication, having say in their office decisions, in their bar decisions and recreation decisions, you know, so where people build things regionally really does matter. Yeah. Well, I think also undergirding all of these complaints about, you know, like local control or wanting to preserve the character of a neighborhood or even just opposing more housing in general is that the idea underlying all of those things is that housing is an investment. And that wasn't always the case in America. Housing was not always seen as an investment that a person could bank on in a way that, you know, other people bank on the stock market. When did that happen? And like, how do you think that ties into the way that people fight about housing? Yeah, totally. So as I as I talk about in the book, um, you know, through the 40s, 50s and 60s or maybe not the 40s, but through the 50s and 60s, you know, people I mean, people it's not like people thought that they would like lose money in their home. It was still like kind of forced savings, but they were not trying to make a huge profit off of it. That started to change in the 70s. For pretty much the entire decade, particularly in the latter half of the decade, we had this horrible inflation problem. And a lot of the problems we have in our economy today, we can date to the latter half of the 70s. So what happened was when inflation was really bad, owning a home started to become even more profitable for two reasons. One, your mortgage interest payments are fixed, so they don't inflate like everything else does. The second thing is is that you can deduct your mortgage interest, so you can essentially use it to hedge inflation elsewhere and lower your taxes. So then you started to see house prices and people checking their house prices and being very conscious of what their house prices were started to really kind of take root. And this leads to this thing that this guy, Bill Fischel, who's an economist at Dartmouth, talks about called the home voter hypothesis. And his home voter hypothesis is basically that, you know, 
your home becomes like an all eggs in one basket kind of investment. You can buy insurance on it, but you can only buy insurance on like things that would like straight up destroy the home, like a fire or a flood or an earthquake. But the one thing you can't buy insurance on is the thing everybody's most worried about, which is that the neighborhood is just not going to be very desirable anymore and nobody will want to buy their home from them. And that is what that is what to some extent nimbyism is trying to protect. It is saying, you know, I'm in deep on this thing, so I need to be, you know, my, my only insurance, if you will, is to is to really, really, really look out for the neighborhood. And aspects of that are actually really good. You know, there are parts of that we don't want to throw away. But, you know, obviously it also starts to be people are very conscious of exactly how much money they're going to make on their house. Um, and, and so I don't know if that's exactly the best system either, uh, because then, you know, inevitably how they feel about their retirement, about all, you know, all these different financial decisions so to be tied up in that house. I just think that the, the problem we're at right now is that it's so bad. I mean, working people, I mean, I grew up in San Francisco in a Victorian house in Noe Valley. Uh, and, you know, my block tended to have more professional people, um, not like executives or anything, but just like, you know, uh, my mother was a middle manager at Chevron. Uh, but then down the street, you know, you would meet people whose dad worked at a machine shop and we all went to the same parks and hung out. I think I was like probably somewhat conscious that people down in a smaller place down the block um, had parents who made less money. So, I mean, I don't think I ever voiced that, but I think I was probably conscious of it. Now people like that live like 50, 60, 70 miles away. I mean, that's just like a completely different type of society and it's really corrosive. And so I, 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 mean, I, I don't, I think we're going to have, there will be variations between places. I just think what we have now is like really starting to rot who we even are as people. And that's my concern. Right. One of the strategies that you write about that the tenant movement is using to keep people from being pushed out of their homes is to strengthen rent control laws. You can see it in California with SB 50, in New York with last summer's slate of rent control laws. In Washington, D.C., there's currently a campaign to reclaim rent control. Now, rent control laws are hotly debated by various economists and community groups. But, I mean, they seem to be extending sort of the same dignity that a mortgage offers to people who buy homes, to people who rent homes. Do you feel like that's sort of one avenue out of the housing as a commodity into the housing as a shelter space? Um, so I will say that I probably had my biggest evolution on rent control during the reporting of this book. Uh, for most of my career, I was an economics reporter, and the economics data on rent control is pretty clear. What it tends to do is it raises rents elsewhere because you essentially pull part of the stock off. And then it also encourages owners of rental housing to basically turn it into ownership housing. Okay, so that's the con, right? But there are also working people whose apartments are being bought by like basically hedge funds who then raise the rent like 50, 60, 70, 80, 100, 200%. I don't know how you can have a society with that happening because it's not like people aren't demanding those people's labor. So rent control or some sort of price protection, let's just call it price protection, not rent control, has to be part of the conversation. I mean, otherwise, what are you going to do? 
there's, I mean, I guess in theory we could have some like massive building plan where you built like, you know, a million units in like three years. But I don't think that's likely. So I think that some sort of preservation of the affordable housing we do have must be part of the solution. And as you alluded to, we as a country put substantial policy and money into creating 30-year fixed mortgages, which you can't get anywhere else, uh, almost solely for the purpose of making people's mortgage payments predictable. The other thing is, too, back when we had a lot of affordable housing, you almost like didn't need rent control as much. Obviously, it was in places like New York because the escape valve was ownership housing. You know, if rent got too much, people would just go buy a house, right? And that's just like not the case now. That option on which many of these rent control studies is sort of predicated, it, it, it's, it's not the same world, right? So one thing I try to be conscious of is like where we are. The kind of apartment owner class will paint for you some apocalyptic vision of like what would happen if, you know, there was no private market and hard vacancy control and all that stuff. And I'm just like, man, we're pretty far from that. Like, maybe I would be worried about your apocalyptic vision if we were like anywhere near that, you know what I mean? But it just sort of like tenants are so beleaguered as of now that anything they fight for is is making up from, you know, nothing. And if anything, I think you could also point to other apocalyptic scenarios like what happened in Cambridge and Boston when they got rid of rent control and things didn't really go according to plan. Um, But I mean, also, I think it's interesting if you look at like the reason why we have rent control at all, it is sort of similar to the position we're in now, which is post-World War I, there was also a housing shortage. Apartment owners were jacking up rents because they could, and then people went on rent strike, and that's why we have rent control in major cities like New York or even in D.C. Um, So I think it's interesting to see sort of the same kinds of militancy come up and like rent strikes rise as this viable strategy in places like Los Angeles or in DC or New York. Totally. I was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal from 2004 until 2014. I covered the Great Recession. I was in the economy group. And we used to always say, why are people not in the streets? I mean, things were so bad. You know what I mean? I mean, you had to occupy, but nothing really sustained and nationwide. And I guess I would say, It seems like people are kind of starting to go into the streets finally, whether it's the tenants movement, the rise of kind of the more socialist ideology, and whether or not you want to agree with any of those things um, straight up or take the whole party line, I feel like maybe we kind of need some people in the streets right now. And so generally speaking, I've I've kind of just observed it uh, as a reporter and thought, you know, maybe this is all on the whole healthy. I don't have to agree with every single position someone has to appreciate that a little pushback is needed. Connor Doherty's new book, Golden Gates, is a compulsively readable primer on housing in America, with the right balance of history and current reporting to reveal just how policies and ideas from 50 years ago are still shaping how much rent you pay today. We have links in the show notes both to Connor's book and some articles on rent control, rent strikes, and all the other creative strategies that activists and yimbies of every stripe are employing to change the way we approach housing. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 